0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk about angels today, and one uh, sort of like brief introduction to that is that we, you know, all of Judaism is, is uh, founded on the, the oneness of God, and, um, and that there are no other powers other than him. So when approaching the uh, sort of just understanding or trying to wrap our minds around angels and different uh, Torah sections that deal with angels and things like that, we have to understand that these are just um, how, uh, I, I heard Rabbi uh, Gedalia Fleer put it one, th- this way one time, uh, the, the phrase always uh, stuck in my mind, how a unity interacts with a multiplicity, meaning to say God is one, and yet in this world we have um, different um, expressions of, of godliness, which are human beings and, and just all the creations of this world. Um, and so God is interacting with his Bria, with his creation. And the sort of the, if you want to think of it in terms of energy, the conduit in which the the one who uh, encompasses all um, and saturates all of existence interacts with his creation. These sort of strands of energy, these strands of interaction are called angels. And then depending on the type of um, assignment that the uh, interaction holds like if it's a healing interaction then that would be called that 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 energy line if you will would be called the angel of healing or something like this but um, but one shouldn't focus too much on angels or angels names or try to think about angels and and and, and things like that because this is basically just the you're, you're you're right at the threshold of vital worship at that point because at that point you are focusing on the sort of like the, the PS, you're, you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing at that point. It's God and it's only God. And then if we say, well, wait a second, you know, I really need a healing. If I have a relationship with the angel of healing, then, then that's going to sort of like speed my recovery. But then all of a sudden you're focusing your prayers to someone other than, something other than God. And so that's just basically called idol worship. So, so that's the introduction to this thought. Um, so now let's learn about angels. <laughs> so, so we have like these are the parshas of angels. There's just they're all over the place, in, 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 um, and, uh, it's just very, just very cool. Um, just how we understand it all. Um, so let's 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 go into it. And by the way, just a, a, just a, one more note of introduction, which is that these these uh, these sections of the Torah, these parshas. Are so good. I mean, they're so incredibly rich, and they're all narrative, you know? I mean, it's, so um, we're, we're going to be coming up to sections of the Torah uh, in the not-too-distant future, which are going to be long stretches of um, measurements. <laughs> and so, you know, in contrast, this is really where if you want to just sort of just like dive in and just sort of like, you know, become one with a uh, with one with our holy fathers and mothers, this is this is really the section. Uh, these are the sections to do it. Okay, so now um, let's get to uh, let's get to. We're going to kind of uh, kind of approach this in in in, in different ways. But um, uh, there is one very uh, evocative word that the commentators are all over, and we're going to try to give several kind of um, understandings of it. And this is the word, it's, it's, um, it's at the end of uh, Parshas um, um And it's, uh, the word is Machanayim, and it means camps. Now, this is in contrast to the, when, by the way, just as you know, a general rule in Torah study, when you have a plural that's not defined, like, for instance, Yamim, that means days, or shanim, that means years. So if it just says days or years, or machinayim, which we're gonna look into more now, which means camps or encampments, anytime you have just a plural without any more um, uh, detail, it means two. That's just a good thing to know, you know? Like, because you could say, "I, I haven't eaten for days. In English, that would suggest maybe weeks, right? But in Torah study, that means two days, right? So, so, so machanayim means encampments. Now, interestingly, just a few kind of verses later in, in the next parsha, which is uh, Vaishlach, Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, talks about dividing up his, his encampment into two sections and it says two camps, so those two camps are called Shnei Machanot, which means two camps. So if you want to talk about two camps of angels, and I'm going to go into this in a moment, which Yaakov sees at the end of Vayeshev, Vayetze rather, then um, then why use this word Machanayim, encampments? So so all I'm trying to say is that is that um, if we're talking about two encampments of angels, which the word machanayim is talking about, then why use this strange um, language when just a few passages later, the same word is, is used in a different way. Shnei machanot. So what is this word machanay? Okay. Um, and what it means is, what's, what's, what's interesting about it, is that it's, it, it is, grammatically speaking, it means a pair. So, for instance, you have um, the Hebrew word for eye is uh, ayin, but, but the plural for eye, two eyes, is enayim. Do you hear machenayim? Enayim. That means it's, not, it's a special form of plural grammar, which means not just two of something, but a pair of something. Y- "Yadayim" is not just hands, but it's a matching set of hands. Reglayim. It's not just legs, it's a matching set of legs. So now we have this idea of machanayim. We have two encampments of angels, but not just two encampments of angels, but they're matching on some level. So what is this matching quality to these two encampments of angels? And why is the Torah going out of its way to tell you that it's a pair as opposed to just two? Like it says in several verses later. Okay? So, now you're going to, now, this is a gateway for many, many interpretations by, so like, our greatest rabbis are, like, all over this, and they give very different, very creative, amazing answers to what is this pair of angelic encampments? Okay? So, so, let me go into uh, one that I, I felt was uh, especially meaningful. Um and this this is from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So so let's let's kind of just take a step backwards for a moment and and get the the fuller context of what these two encampment of angels were that, that Jacob saw. All right, let's get into the narrative itself, okay? So basically, Yaakov has just left his whole kind of um, you know kind of tortured basically servitude in with Loven right? And, and, but, but it's also coincided with the birth of the, of the, uh, of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that, that's an amazing thing. And, and Yaakov is leaving with tremendous, tremendous wealth. And now he's about to confront Asab. And the last thing that he's heard is that Asab wants to murder him. And that's about 20 years ago now. So, so he's about to enter into Asab's territory, which is the land of Israel, because Asab was still living in Israel at the time. Um, although this land has been promised to, to, to Yaakov and, 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 and the Jewish people uh, forever. So, so Jacob now is right on the border of uh, what we call Chutz Aretz, the land outside of Israel, and he's about to enter into Israel proper. Okay, so, so, so seen in this context, and this is sort of the classic shot the classic explanation of what the two encampments of angels are. He saw an encampment of angels which um, sort of have jurisdiction of the land outside of Israel. So since he was right basically on the border uh, of Israel, and he was still outside of Israel, he saw the angels which were um, sort of like guide and protect us. You know, again, this is all Hashem, but... That, that heavenly sort of energy conduit, if you will. He saw the, the, the angels of Chutzla Aretz there. That was one encampment. And then he saw the angels of um, Eretz the, Israel, the angels of the land of Israel, because he was right on the border. Okay? And those were the two encampments of angels. All right, But it, it gets more involved than that. So, so, but they were really a matching set so if, 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 if one is the angels uh, uh, outside the land and the other is the angels inside the land, that's not really a matching set. <laughs> okay, those are two different categories of angels. Yeah. All right, so what it says is, is that the angels of Israel came outside the land of Israel to escort Yaakov into Israel. Okay, so now it is a matching set because now you've got two encampments of angels outside the land of Israel, right? And just in case that got confusing, imagine someone is, you know, 10 feet outside of your home and you leave your home to escort them into your home. So that would be the angels of the land of Israel going outside the land, but just to, in order to escort Jacob in, okay? So so they say, well, um, how can it be that they're leaving the land of Egypt, the land of Israel, if they're the if they're the angels of Israel, right? They sh- they shouldn't be able to leave the land of uh, Israel because um, that's outside their jurisdiction. So they say, no, 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 because their intention, because their mission was to bring them into Israel, then it's okay that they were outside the land of Israel. It's just a little detail. It's not a problem. Okay. All right, now now listen to the, what the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, because it's way, way deeper. This is all just an introduction for the following thought. Okay? So, the Lubavitcher Rebbe says the following. What was Jacob's mission? Jacob's mission in terms of um, going outside the land. And, you know, you know, there's deep, 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 deep stuff in terms of... Um, You know, like what the Ari says about how all the sheep were born and the peeling of the sticks and how this was all a rectification of Adam Harishon in the Garden of Eden and, you know, the birth of the the 12 tribes and all this is the rectification of the entire world. I mean, it it gets phenomenally deep what, what, what Yaakov Avinu was up to. But let's just say it very, very simply. What Yaakov was doing by going outside the land of Israel was elevating all of the sparks. Okay, all of the fallen sparks he was, he was elevating. And we know that in the future when Mashiach comes, the entire world is going to have the kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. It's going to have the holiness and the status of the land of Israel. So, so put in these terms, Yaakov's mission in leaving Israel was to turn the world into Israel. Okay. Now, now the Rebbe, the Rebbe says the following. He says, "So, when you're outside the land of Israel, and your mission is to invest the land outside of Israel with the holiness of Israel, which is what we're all doing when we do Torah and mitzvot and acts of kindness and love and everything like that, then the angels of Israel." come outside the land to help you turn the world into Israel. Which means that everyone outside the land actually has double protection. If your goal is to transform the world into increased holiness, you get the angels, not just of outside the land, but in addition, the angels of the land of Israel assisting you in turning the rest of the world into Israel. And that that's what was going on when that extra set of angels left Israel to greet Yaakov. So this is very intense. This is very amazing. And now, now let's go back to this word, machanayim. Now you see how they're matching pairs. It's like two of a kind. These two, these two matching encampments of angels. All right, now we're going to take an entirely different spin. Like, okay, just file that. And now we're going to take an entirely different approach. And this is from Rav Tzadaka Koin, who, who sees it very differently. And I'm not saying I'm going to do justice to this at all, but I'm just going to give you just the, the tip of the iceberg of what he's saying. Just his approach is so interesting, and it's so different. It's so, it's so interesting in, it's, in how differently he's approaching the subject, just to hear how he's approaching it is valuable in and of itself. And then maybe if we can get a little bit more out of it, okay, great. But um, just, I'm just, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not telling you that I'm telling you everything that he's saying on this, because I'm not saying I grasp it. Alright, so, so, so he says like this. Very, very interesting. He says, now remember, Yaakov is going to confront Esav. So this is a climactic meeting in terms of the implications. Remember, it says um, which means that the actions of our fathers are assigned to the children, which is another way of saying that everything that our forefathers did, our mothers and fathers did, is a microcosm of everything that's ever going to take place. So the confrontation between Yaakov and Esav is completely epic. It's epic in terms of its implications till the end of days, till Mashiach comes. So Yaakov is about to meet his brother. Remember, the last thing his brother said was that he was going to murder him, okay? And, and now, like right on the threshold of meeting his brother, he sees two matching encampments of angels, right? Machanayim, right? Two matching encampments of angels. And now listen to this. An amazing, an amazing approach. Rav Tzadaka Koin says that what those two, the, what Yaakov saw in those two encampments of angels was Asav's Yetzirah and his Yetzirah Tov. His positive inclination, which is one angelic force, and his negative inclination, which is another angelic force. Now he derives very interesting things from this. Remember, all of us have a positive inclination and a negative inclination. And it says, actually, in the Talmud, that our negative inclination, that which, which wants us to do wrong, and, and the way I heard Rabbi Green say it, which is much more scary and compelling, it actually wants to kill us. actually wants to kill us. That our, that our Yetzirah is actually stronger, the Talmud says, than our Yetzirah. But Hashem assists us and allows us to overpower the Yetzirah. And it also says that the Yetzirah renews itself daily against a person. Like, have you... Like, this was like a recent... (laughs) uh, uh, New thought to me. Have you ever had this experience where it's sort of like something that you really um, haven't thought about? You know, all of a sudden, like... Like, that thing was never you know, tempting to me or interesting to me, ever. And then all of a sudden you get it into your head. Like, oh, what's that? Mm-hmm. Right? That's a classic example of the Yetzirah renewing itself against you. It's sort of like, okay, what new thing can I throw at this person? <laughs> How about this? <laughs> and you're like, oh, look at that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so, if you ever wonder what, why all of a sudden you're thinking about something that you never thought about before... That's just, you know, that's Yetzirahonomics, right? That's, that's, that's just how the Yitzhak works. So you shouldn't think that... Um, you should just be aware of it. Because, you know, the Yetzirah can be studied. And the more you can know about it, the, the, the better you are prepared to, um, to be able to fight it or to resist its, its, uh, its uh, um, seduction. And the best way, by the way, I think to guard yourself against it. By the way, it says in Perkei something very interesting. It says, know how to answer a heretic. Mm-hmm. Now, on a simple level, that means if someone tr- tries to tell you, you know, there's no God or something like that, you should be able to say, well, look at the world. Like, how, how could everything fit together and work like this? And it all be by accident. How-, how is that even possible? How is that in- even intellectually honest for you to posit that? You know, so that would be one example of how to answer a heretic. But a deeper shot is how to answer a heretic is how to answer your own yetsahara. Right? That when your own yetsahara comes to you that you should have you should be skilled in being able to know what to say or know what know what not to say. But the best the best way to handle it is just not to engage it at all. And and the the again the classic sort of parable is that you're walking down the street and there's sort of like a, a salesman who sort of like or waves to you from the other side of the street. And then, you know, if you wave back, then it starts to cross the street towards you. <laughs> and if you speak to it, then it, you know, then it speaks to you and if you speak back to it, now all of a sudden you're in a conversation. Now I've never been in like, uh, in the Middle East where someone's tried to sell me a carpet. <laughs> But I understand that that's a very difficult situation to get out of. <laughs> you know, there's... The, I, I don't know what it is, but they, they sit you down, and then they bring you tea, and they won't let you leave, and it's, like, very, very difficult to disengage yourself once you're in that situation. Very difficult. And this is a craft that, they've, that has been in, like, families for, like, thousands of years, literally. I mean, they... they, they, they <laughs> They just know how to coerce you and, and, and how to just cripple you into buying a carpet. You know, I mean, it sounds, it sounds funny, but it's real. So this is actually true. So, so, so the Yitzhahara is, is, where did they learn that from? You know, who is the, the master salesman? You know, so, so now, now you have um, this idea that, 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 that Yaakov Avinu, is, is seeing two encampments of angels. He's seeing Asaph's he's seeing Yetzer Hara and his Yetzer Tov, his positive inclination and his negative inclination. And he's wondering since it's been 20 years since he's seen him. And remember, Asav's head is buried in Mars Hamach Pela. Right? And that's a whole fascinating medrash in itself. I want to try to do a whole talk on just that, so I won't get into it right now. But we have this idea that, that, that Asaph certainly had good in him, and um, he actually had greatness in him, but it, he, he, didn't, he wasn't able to uh, uh, realize it. But, but there were aspects of him, especially in his ability to honor his father and his mother, which were, which were phenomenal, phenomenal. And so there was goodness in there. And so Yaakov is gone for a couple of decades. Yaakov's wondering, may, maybe, maybe he turned around. Maybe he turned around. Like, what do I know? What, what do I know? Like, there's his Yetzirah, there's his Yetzirahara, and it says they were equal encampments. So, who knows? Now, this idea that they're equal encampments, this is very deep also, in terms of applying it to one's uh, positive inclination and negative inclination. Because what, what our, our, our sort of kind of unsophisticated sort of rookie uh, understanding of Torah is to think that, um, well, the Yetzirah is bad, and the Yitzhah Tov is good. So, the, you know, the, the negative inclination, that's just bad. But remember, w- the premise of Judaism is that there's only one power, which means evil serves good. Remember, remember the, 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 the basic understanding that when the Yetzirah comes to a person, it can't want you to do bad because it works for God. Because otherwise you say that evil is an independent power in the world. And that means there's two powers. And that's completely, that's a a non-starter in Jewish thought. So that means evil has to work for good. Which means that when the satan, so to speak, comes to a person and tries to tempt you to do fill-in-the-blank, if you say yes to it, the teaching is that it rips its clothes and cries. And if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. Because it works for God. That's its job, to test us. But, but, but it doesn't want us to fail. Okay? Which means, in essence, that the Sahara is just a trampoline, if you will, for us to rise higher. And that it's not inherently bad at all. This is what Reb Tzaddik is saying, and it certainly, absolutely, obviously, syncs with Jewish thought. Now, again, let's revisit this notion, and then you see how beautiful this word, mathenayim, is again. Because a pair of something is a matching pair, which means that the Yitzhahara actually is matching, in terms of its potential goodness anyway, with the Yetzir Tov. But they're not inherently different. Because the Yetzir Hara is just a vehicle for us to say no to in order to achieve more good in our life. Now, Reb Tzadik goes further. He says there are three primary Yetsaharas in a person's life. Okay? And... And he's quoting Perkei Avos, chapter 4, uh, Mishnah 21. And these are jealousy, uh, taiva, which would be translated as lust, and honor. Okay? And that, that all yetsaharas of a person can basically fall into one of these three categories or a, or, or a combination, a mixture of these three categories. Again, jealousy, taiva, which would be, I mean, desire would be a, a uh, kind of like a G-rated uh, translation, you know. It means like a real ah, hunger, you know, for something, and um, an honor. Uh, so, so he says that all three of these things can be sublimated, meaning to say that none of these three things are inherently negative, that all of them in the proper context can be elevated and be used for kadusha and service of God. So what is an example of jealousy? So we have something called kina sofrim, which means the jealousy amongst, it says, jealousy among scholars increases wisdom, meaning to say that if you're, say, in a base medrash or in a Torah academy or whatever it is, or really any setting, even an academic setting, whatever setting, and you see, and I'm really talking about any setting, like you know, like music or, or writing or, or, or law, anything, and you see someone has better skills than you have. And you're like, wow, they're kind of just, i got to be honest, they're just better at this than I am. Now, you can go one of two ways with that thought. You can go, "Therefore I hate them," right? <laughs> Which is where most people go with that thought. <laughs> or, or, or you can say, or you can say, "Wow, you know what?" But I think I could do that if I work harder, if I work harder, if I practice more, if I put more time into it, if I read more, if I concentrate more, you know, I, I actually think that I, I, can, achieve, I can do that then that jealousy all of a sudden transforms you and you become better. Right? So what I would say to you, and this is now coming from me, what I would say to you is next time you have a jealous moment with someone, consider this thought. Say to yourself, you know what? I want that person to be my teacher. Mm. Right? I want that person to be my teacher. Because now all of a sudden you have transformed a very sort of emotionally tricky area for yourself into like a very positive, productive kind of thing, right? And now you're not looking at them with a bad eye, you're looking at them with a good eye because, wow, this person can help me, or this person can bring me to another level. Okay? So, so... So that's jealousy. That's jealousy. See, but, but, but the ball's in our court, right? Like, I always like to quote my wife. She once said to me, I said to her, Jealousy among scholars increases wisdom. And she said to me, Among scholars. Mm. <laughs> you, you, you have to be on the level <laughs> to use that to make yourself into someone better. Right? So the balls in your port, court to be a scholar, so to speak. Meaning to say, someone with proper mitos, proper, you know, uh, personality uh, traits. Okay. So that's, that's jealousy. Now let's talk about taiva. Right? This very sort of primal kind of desire for something. Um, David a Melech says, um, I, I can't qu- quote the exact words, but in, in the Psalms, he says, I lust for God. He uses the word taiva to talk about his feelings toward God. Meaning to say that a person... Remember, I always like to quote this, which is that the Rambam, who's our consummate rationalist, right? You know, like, you know, there's no such thing as Shadim and this, that, and the other thing, and all the rest, and, you know, everything is very, you know, rationally based, seemingly... He's the one who says that a person has to walk around lovesick with God. <laughs> right? So that's like, you can't put it any more emotionally than that. And that's our consummate rationalist. Okay, so that's the, that's the idea that, that you have an intense love affair going on. All of us have an intense love affair going on then it's a, just a question of like realizing it and accessing it and and you know engaging in it you know like you know waking up if you think about it just waking up in the morning like that's that's a very unbelievable thing that happens to us every single day you know so, you know, it says on the first page of the, of the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, on the first page, a person has to get out of bed in the morning like a lion. You know, that's something I try to work on and, and usually fail at. And it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, that, in other words, when do you engage with God on that, in that passionate way? Literally the moment of waking up. That's got to be like, wow! You just put my soul in me, right? Whoa! You know, and and I'm responding by ju- jumping out of bed. That's that's that that's one of countless examples, and everyone can do it in their in their own way. And by the way, I don't think that you can have this type of relationship with God unless you are talking to God. On a regular basis, and certainly outside shul, right? I mean, the primary time to talk to God is outside of shul. You know, so you have to be engaged in a relationship. Can you? I mean, you know, can you can you imagine saying, you know, what's your relationship with your with your lover, right? Whoever that is, you say, oh, it's fantastic. Do you guys ever talk? No, never talk. Really, you have this intense love affair going. You do you text, right? No. <laughs> I mean, no, no, yeah. when's the last time you said I don't know it's been a, it's been a while yeah. that's not actually a relationship <laughs> that's the illusion of a relationship <laughs> you must talk to God you must talk to God on a regular basis and like Rabbi Nachman says you know you talk to God like your best friend right? I mean don't you, don't you envy using that word in a positive sense don't you envy those couples that say about each other oh she's my best friend he's my best friend Right, so Rabbi Nachman is saying that same thing in another, and saying this same thing in another way, that you have to talk to God like you talk to your best friend. Right, so you know, that maybe is a little less, um, you know, maybe a little bit more accessible to to think of it in that way. And um, let's move on to the next thing, which is I think more straightforward, which is honor. Um, and honor is uh, how do we how do we use honor? And honor is really interesting. Honor is an especially uh, especially toxic um, yitzhahara because honor it, it's kind of different from the other two because um, the other two it, I don't know I, I won't compare and contrast right now but. But honor can get you every single moment. Oh, um, oh, they didn't, they said hello, but they didn't say hello, how are you? (laughs) Or they said hello, but it was more like hello. It wasn't hello. (laughs) This is all honor. This is all honor. Or, you know what, forget about the fact that you went to someone's house. Where was I seated? (laughs) Or they gave me this, but they could have given me that. I mean, this is you know, this is this. They gave me that wine. You know, why did they even bring a wine? (laughs) What? (laughs) You know, are you serious? I mean, but literally, honor can get you at any at any moment. At any moment, you can feel dishonored. You know, that's why honor is almost its own category, because it's sort of seemingly more parv in some ways, like more, if you follow what I'm saying, like, but it just, it can creep in, you know, like people routinely get upset because the, the dry cleaner wasn't sufficiently, you know, pro- You know, didn't, didn't treat them with enough respect. Really? You know, like like uh, like um like Haman. You know, I, I I read this one time. I forgot who said it exactly. But but Haman Haman had it going on. I mean, he was remember, he he was number 2 to Ahasuerus who controlled basically the known world at that time. So, you know, Haman was and, and. Achishveros was like a little bit checked out in a lot of ways. So Haman was kind of running the world, you know, secularly speaking. He had like a giant family. He had hundreds of millions or perhaps billions of dollars in wealth. He was crazy rich, right? And what did he say? And I'll quote him. All of this means nothing to me because this one Jew is not bowing down to me. I mean, and it leads to his death and the death of his sons. So, so there is a way to go through life. And many of us do this, and we don't have insight into it. Where we are basically wagering our self-esteem. Like, imagine you're at a casino table, and you're doing double or nothing. You've got all your chips, right? Right? and you're doing double or nothing on every single (laughs) transaction, okay? Now, imagine everything you've accomplished in your life, right? All of us have accomplished many, 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 many things. You know, just even if it's just saying hello to someone, that's an accomplishment, really, honestly. You know, just tons of things. And now, can you imagine now I go into the dry cleaner, and the dry cleaner scowls at me, and now I'm depressed, what have I done? A lot of people go through life, and in every interaction that they have, they are wagering their entire self-esteem. Do you hear? So how I feel about myself is in direct correlation to how the person who I just interacted with treated me. Do, do, do you hear that? Do you hear the insanity of that approach to life? This is the Yetzirah of honor. This is the Yetzirah of honor. That I, am cons- I have no sense of confidence or self-esteem or sense of what I've accomplished in life. It's totally dependent on how you are responding to me in this moment. This is utter ridiculousness. Utter ridiculousness. So, so, have a little more confidence. Have a little more self-respect about what you've accomplished in your life. That you shouldn't be uh, vulnerable in this way. Um, okay. So now, let's continue. So, so, I don't want to go further with Rav because that's, that's basically as much as I understood. But, but, but that is... The idea that Machenayim, these two encampments of angels, were, were Yaakov was seeing Esau's Yitzhar and Yentsertov. Okay. So. Uh, so let me let me share with you something that um. That was that kind of came to me on Shabbos. Which I uh, got sort of excited about, which is. This idea. Oh, by the way, so how do you use honor for Torah? So how do you how do you use it in a positive way? So you by 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 use, by, by treating the Torah itself, by treating Hashem, by treating the mitzvahs, by treating each other with, by lifting them up, right? and and, and then you use it in that way, right? You use honor not as something like honor me, but I have the ability to honor you, and I, you know, I, I remember a a uh, a kind of a celebrity uh, experience that I had that 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 um stays with me. Um, those of you who kind of know these things, and uh, especially in the world of comedy, uh, John Cleese, who's the you know one of the leaders of uh, Monty Python, is considered really one of the great comic minds, geniuses, you know, of, you know, us hundred years, I guess, or whatever it is. I mean, I mean it sounds stupid to throw out a, a time span, but he's 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 a great, for sure. And, um, and anyway, so he was on a show that I was working on, on Third Rock from the Sun. And it was like, for us, it was like this huge, giant honor to have John Cleese, you know, like there, working with, you know, John Cleese, you know. This was like very big. So I remember... Um, he was on the set, and there, were, there was a whole crowd of people around him, and um, and and I came late. I don't know why I, I did, and so I was standing really on the outskirts of this crowd. It was maybe, I don't know, maybe 25 people, and I was all the way in the back. And then someone said, "Oh, and that's, and that's David, whatever." So, but it was in the middle of something, and it was you know very much an afterthought. I was you know like I say on the outside of the crowd. So anyway, the. The, the next day, I'm walking on the set and, uh, you know, I didn't want to bother him. He was sitting behind the table, was reading a script. I, I walked by him and he said, hello, David. Mm. And I was like, ah, I felt like a million dollars, you know. Mm. And, and I, I, I felt like, you know, here's a man who has like this giant mountain of honor. And he's using his honor to uplift other people. You know, and I was so impressed to this day about it. You know, and, and that, that's how we're supposed to use honor. We're <laughs> supposed to use whatever we have to lift other people up. And, and um, you know, the, the, the master of this was really Reb Shlomo Kalabach. I mean, the way he greeted people was he, he it was really like Tachiyah It was like resurrection of the dead. The way he would bring people back to life in the way that he greeted them, you know, it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. One of the my favorite stories in Holy Brother is someone writes that they were walking. I think it was on West End Avenue, and in on the Upper West Side in New York, and there was an old man who was like hunched over, and 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 this person saw this, and Reb Shlomo was just you know greeting this man and just just telling him how happy he was to see him and just. Just what a wonderful person he was. And, and the person, over the course of this, stood up straight, this old man. Now, it's not... I don't want you to misinterpret it. I don't know that he was clinically unable to stand up. I'm not saying there was like some miracle that took place here. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story was, here was an old man who was hunched over, and by the end of this conversation, he was standing up straight. That's the point. That, that you can literally lift someone up. And on that point, just a, a halachic uh, idea, is that when we bow down and we say Hashem's name, you should know this and be careful about this, by the way, you go, you say, Baruch Atah, and you bow down for Baruch and Atah. But when you say Hashem's name, you have to be standing up straight. It's very important. And, and I heard Reb Shlomo say on this point, that because Hashem makes you stand up straight. Right? Hashem lifts you up. You don't say Hashem's name while you're bowed down. You, you only say it when you're standing up straight. You know, and, and I'll say one more point. that, that this, is, this point is from, from me, which is that when you lift up the Torah for Hagbah, right, you should have in mind that the Torah lifts you up. <laughs> that the Torah is lifting you up. Right, that not not that you're lifting the Torah up, the Torah lifts you up, right? Um, okay, so so let's go let's go back into this, and um, and and I wanted to tell you the thought from Shabbos. So you know, one of the kind of running things if you've uh, listened to these talks at all is one of my great loves is the is the letter Aleph, you know, and. Um, so, so this is, this is uh, another way, perhaps, to understand the, the letter Aleph. So, so when, when we know that the letter Aleph is, is structured, that it's, there's a Yud on top. It's actually composed of three letters. Like many letters in the, in the Hebrew alphabet are actually composites of different letters. So you have a Yud on top, and then you have the letter Vav, uh, diagonally, and then the letter yud below, and these are explained in very amazing ways. Um, but uh, but we know that um, we know that uh, actually Rashi brings it that when Yaakov Avinu had the dream about the angels going up and down the ladder, that the ladder itself was on a diagonal. Okay, the Rashi brings that up that the ladder was on a diagonal. So seen in this way, the letter Aleph, it's like, it's, remember we said that there are angels inside the land of Israel and angels outside the land of Israel. And so the classic understanding of what Yaakov saw with this word machanayim, encampments of angels, was he saw that the angels who were protecting him outside the land of Israel were, were going up, they were ascending because they had finished their job. And the angels from um, inside Israel, who guard the inside of Israel, were coming down to give Yaakov that protection. So these were angels going up and angels going down. And so I think you see this in the letter Aleph, that that the vav in the middle, the diagonal vav, is the ladder. And the yud below is the angels coming down. And the Yud above is the angels ascending. Right? Now, I think one of the special things about that understanding of the letter Aleph is that normally speaking, we say that the Yud above is like the upper waters, right? the higher spiritual realms, and the Yud below is, is more this realm. Right? That's the classic understanding of this. What's interesting about what I'm, I'm suggesting is that the Yud below, actually, is the angels that have just come down. And the Yud above is the angels that have just finished their work that are ascending now. So, so, uh, I want to say something else also on the letter Aleph. I want to say that, that the Yud above is the mind and the Yud below is the heart. And when we talk about the upper waters, right those are the tears of your eyes. so so maybe when we're teaching about angels, we know that that Yaakov of Venus is uh, is wrestling with the angel of Asve and um and what's, what's, I think, kind of interesting here, I mean, there's obviously endlessly fascinating things about it, but, but one observation is that it says that a stranger came to Yaakov. And what struck me about that was that it, it's not clear at all that Yaakov knew that this stranger was an angel, at least in the beginning. Because it, it basically says that the passage itself, the verse says that a A man came to Yaakov, right? So I thought, wow, you know, this is something that I've actually never seen written about yet, which is that where else do you see among the Avos where angels came as men, right? Because the three angels come as men to Avraham, and he interacts with them. And now you have another instance, bookending it, right, with the Avos, where you have... a. A strange man coming to Yaakov now. So that's just the beginning of a thought. It's, that's worth exploring and comparing those two things, you know, in detail. But the point that I'm trying to make is that it says that, uh, that, that, that Yaakov seemingly, uh, in terms of a basic understanding, didn't know that it was an angel to begin with. Now I want to tell you some, a piece of uh, uh, Talmud, um, which is, it's in Chulin 91a, if you want to look it up. And this is, I think, important information for you to know uh, uh, just on the level of derech eretz. okay? Just how to conduct yourself properly. Because the Talmud wants to know which side was Yaakov Avinu attacked on. Was it on the left side or on the right side? Okay? And, they, and, and from that you're going to learn out what the personality of this stranger came to him as. All right? Because it says, the first opinion is that he came on, or one opinion is that he came on Yaakov's left side and attacked him on the left side. Now, from that they learn out, the Talmud teaches, that he came to him as a simple unlearned man. So what they teach from this is that if you're walking down the street, and this is talking to us now, if you're walking down the street with a rabbi, make sure that you stand on his left side. Okay, This is a proper way to conduct yourself. Now there's another opinion, which is that actually he came to Yaakov looking like a great scholar. Right? And that he actually attacked him on his right side. Which means that if you are like, you know, like a scholar, then you should be on the right side when you walk down the street. I'll tell you something. Um... Just, uh, just, uh, just a weird thing, you know, which is that it says it, it it dislocated the hip socket of Yaakov, right? So, so I was born with a dislocated hip socket. Just like this very odd thing to have in common with Yaakov. <laughs> so, so. Um, Anyway, and that as a result, his, um, his git hanasha, which is translated as the sciatic nerve, got, got injured. So that's, um, and that as a result, we, can eat, we can't eat or enjoy that. And so certain cuts of meat, like filet mignon, for instance, unless they're very specially treated and you get the sciatic nerve out. Um, which is unusual to find, but you can find it if you really want it. So that would be like, for instance, if you don't eat kosher yet, then at least don't order filet mignon. <laughs> you know, that would be like one good step to take. You know, because that way you're not enjoying the sciatic nerve. Now, I'll tell you something very interesting that I saw from the Mayor Naim, the Chernobyl Rebbe, right? And, and he's, he, he brings this idea that we know... there's, um, we've got two categories of mitzvahs. Do this, don't do that. Okay, those are the two categories. In the don't do that category, the lotase, we have 365 mitzvahs, right? And the rabbis point out very, you know, clearly that there's 365 days to the year. So therefore, there must be a lotase, a, 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 a mitzvah in that category, which correlates with each one of the 365 days of the year. Okay, so I've never seen a chart. I don't know if it exists of what each day correlates with, right? But there are certain days that the rabbis have said this day correlates with that mitzvah. And do you know what day correlates with don't eat the geta nasha? Which means remember that's um. Remember just the implications of this. Just we'll take a step back. You see we say again "Maisa avos simen labanan that everything that happened to our fathers and mothers is a sign for all of history so this wrestling match that took place between Jacob and this angel and this angel is identified as the sar shel esof as the guardian angel of asaph which is also linked to the Sahara. so this wrestling match goes on until dawn so when dawn comes, all of a sudden the angel says, okay, I've got to go. And I've got to sing the praises of Israel. Actually, So they say, what is that dawn? Why was it at that moment? Because that moment stands for the messianic year. In other words, this struggle, this wrestling match is going to take place till dawn. And then at dawn, when Mashiach comes, then it's over. So this injury that was done to Jacob, remember Jacob has the name Israel, he gets the name Israel here, is a sign of all the damage and all the hardship that the Jewish people are going to have to go through till Mashiach comes. That's what they get in Nasha. The sciatic nerve that gets injured stands for. And by the way, when it says when the sun rose, Jacob was healed. Okay? So the Chernobyl Rebbe says that you know what day of the year don't eat the sciatic nerve correlates with? With Tisha B'Av. Because Tisha B'Av, number one, is a fast day. You can't eat anything. And number two is the repository of all the pain that we've gone through in the exile. So that's a very strong correlation. Um... So, so let's, uh, let's wrap it up. We're, we're, we're lucky. We're really, we're lucky. We're so lucky. You know? You know, like I say every once in a while, you know? But I really believe it. A person has to appreciate the fact that God didn't have to make the world at all. You know? We, we assume so much. We take so many things for granted. But just the, the fact that God even made the world, He didn't have to make the world. The fact that God even made the world is awesome. It's en- that's endlessly awesome. And you know... When my first child was born, the, 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 uh, the, uh, it was at Cedar Sinai, and it, it used to overlook the Hard Rock Cafe. It's not there anymore. They used to have a sign over the Hard Rock Cafe, which was the world's population. And it was one of those signs that is always like in movement. it's always increasing. And I remember, so there's my wife about to give birth. And there's the population of the world scrolling like right out the window. And I was like filming the population of the world, you know, like doing like a pan shot, you know. It's like there it is, like, you know, that's what it is right now, you know. So it's sort of like, but then it's at a certain point, it's like, in other words, we're not only didn't God ever have to create the world, but he certainly didn't have to create you or me. Who says that we would even get invited to this party? (laughs) We got invited by God to his party. So that's awesome. That's awesome. And, you know, there's there's an interesting heter, interesting sort of halacha. Which is, if a person is in mourning, uh, during those months of mourning, um, they're really not supposed to go to parties, right? And um, let's say there's a party that you got to go to. Like, for instance, let's say there's a wedding of someone who's very close to you. It's like, are you not going to go to the wedding because you're in mourning? No, no, no. So the rabbis say, look, here's a, here's a way to deal with a situation like that. Serve some drinks at the wedding. Because if you're working the wedding, <laughs> then it's sort of like you're working at the wedding, so it's not the same thing as just purely being a guest at the wedding. It's a heter. It's, it's, it's a leniency. But, but there's a logic to it. And it's meant to address a situation like this where a person can be included. right, And, and still you know be sensitive to the fact that they're still in mourning. Right? So, it's, um, it's actually a beautiful thing. So, what I'm trying to say is, is that there's no inherent contradiction to being at a party and having to work also. <laughs> this world is, has a lot of work to do. But let's not lose sight of like, what the headline of it is. The headline is, is that it's this awesome, out-of-control place. Where we can do incredible things, incredible things. I mean, do you know the age that we're living in right now? Think about 100 years ago. Let's say you wrote a song 100 years ago, right? Now you can write a song, put it on the internet, and the whole world can hear it. Do you know how crazy that is? That's nuts. That's nuts. It could be like if you could get the guy in the, who lived across from you in the village to listen to you, you're lucky. <laughs> right? Now you've got people in like Africa and Europe listening to you. That's nuts. That means that as we get closer to Mashiach, Hashem is magnifying the power or the influence of each one of us to change the entire world. What He's doing is He's He's revealing what's inside of us because it's, it's not like now all of a sudden we're stronger than we used to be. We're actually weaker than we used to be. But He's revealing this inherent power that He's placed within each one of us. That's what's going on. That's what's going on. And understand that when you, we all have Yetzirah that when the Yetzirah comes remember that word Machinayim, that it's a pair that it's not inherently evil. Like, just like the the Yetzir Tov is good, that in its essence, the Yetzirah is also good. But, you must channel it appropriately. Either by just saying no to it, or not engaging with it. Right? Maybe we should call this talk, Don't Buy the Carpet, right? It's like, you know, it's like, like, not, not engaging with it, or the highest level is to sublimate it. Remember, because we said that jealousy, you know, lust, taiva, and honor are all the main ways, or mixtures of them, the main ways that the Yetzir comes to you. And to train ourselves to, to look for those opportunities when they come, like when we said with jealousy, to say, I can learn from that person. Right? With honor, let me use whoever I am to lift you up. With desire, to say, God, you know, talk to God. Be in that relationship with God. Talk to God like He's your best friend. To use all of these forces that could oppose us, like, so to speak, like a trampoline, to jump on them and to let them lift us up higher. Okay.